So welcome to another episode of our Dolby Institute and Soundworks Collection podcast. This is uh, our continuing series, Conversations with Sound Artists. And I am thrilled to be joined today by Walter Murch for our conversation. Walter has uh, won three Academy Awards. I, I, I believe, Walter, correct me if I'm wrong, I believe you're, you're the only person who has ever won uh, Academy Awards for editing picture and mixing sound on the same film. Yeah, that's that's correct. As you did with uh, Anthony Minghella's film, The English Patient. And then, of course, Walter also won an Academy Award for Best Sound for Apocalypse Now. In addition, he's had six other nominations, including two in the same year for editing picture on Ghost and The Godfather Part Three. In addition to that, Walter has been involved with some of the best-known films of the past 40 years, including working on picture and or sound on all three Godfather films, American Graffiti, Apocalypse Now, The Conversation, The Unbearable Lightness. Am I starting to embarrass you, Walter? Or should, may I, may I keep going? I'm blushing on, on audio here. <laughs> uh, the Unbearable Lightness of Being, The Talented Mr. Ripley, Jarhead, and many others. In, in addition, uh, Walter is also a writer and director, having co-written the script for THX 1138 with George Lucas, and having directed the picture Return to Oz in 1985. In 1994, he won the Career Achievement Award from the Cinema Audio Society, and in 2011, he won the Career Achievement Award from the Motion Picture Sound Editors. And in short, he is simply one of the most well-respected people who have ever worked in our side of the business, the post-production side. So I'm, I'm absolutely thrilled. Cue the blushing sound. Yeah. <laughs> I'm absolutely thrilled uh, that Walter has taken the time to talk with us today. We sound a little, a little lo-fi. It's because we're actually speaking through Skype. I'm in Southern California, and Walter is in London where he is working uh, working on a picture right now. So, Walter, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you. So, um, b- before we dive in, why don't you tell us a little bit about this project that you're working on and what, what you're doing in London right now? It's a independently financed uh, feature-length documentary about uh, Iran, circa 1953. If you know anything about that period, it's when the Shah of Iran was installed by the CIA to make sure that the oil continued to flow from Iran uh, to the rest of the world because the democratically elected government of the time had nationalized the oil uh, under Prime Minister Mossadegh. And that was, at least according to the beliefs at the time, that was a big no-no. And so the CIA and MI6 ganged up together and uh, installed the dictatorship of the Shah, which lasted uh, for 25 years until it was overthrown by the uh, Islamic Revolution. Wow, that's, uh, that's, that's a handful. Yeah, it is. We're right in the middle of it, so uh, I can't say much more about it than that, but uh, that's, that's the framework that we're working with. Well, it's actually... so. Uh, that's actually a perfect introduction to um, one, one thing I wanted to do with uh, the interview with you, which which is is distinctive in this series. Uh, I actually reached out to several other prominent sound designers uh, and, and decided to uh, let them, uh, you know, sound designers ask a sound designer a question. So that actually tees up the, the first question that I have for you from another one of your cohorts in the industry. This is from this is from Ren Kleiss, who has worked for many oh, years yeah. uh, with David Fincher as his sound designer. Ren is a five-time Oscar nominee and worked on Inside Out and The Social Network and the and Fight Club. So 
this actually tees up Ren's question quite perfectly. He's, he writes, hello, Walter. <laughs> I, know you're, I know you're working on a documentary film, and I'm curious if your approach to the soundtrack is any different on a documentary than on a dramatic film. Is there a difference between fictional sound versus documentary sound? And he, he asks, if you're adding sound or music to a documentary, do you feel that is still genuine? Are there different thresholds that your aesthetic would not go beyond to stay true to what was filmed or is the point to still convince the audience of an emotional response? Well, on this particular one, we, we are still at an early stage, uh, so I can't answer that directly um, with examples from this film. But the last documentary I worked on, which came out uh, about two years ago, Particle Fever, the story of the, the large... Right, about the, uh, the, the particle accelerator. And, yeah, and the discovery of the Higgs boson. Um, Mark Levinson uh, and I, uh, Mark is the director, we did not feel constrained at all by the fact that it was a documentary <clears throat> and our approach to it, since we had both worked on many feature films and in fact many feature films together, Mark is a specialist in ADR, um, we didn't feel constrained to... Uh, not have a, an evocative score and to not have even Foley where it was appropriate and <clears throat> even uh, ADR. So uh, we, we adhered strictly to Pablo Picasso's dictum, which is that art is a lie that tells the truth. And we were after the truth as far as we saw it about what CERN was all about, what the Large Hadron Collider was all about, and what the mysterious Higgs was. And um, in fact, none of those things make any sound at all that you could recognize. Um, sure. Uh, even the collider itself is 30 stories underground. So it's not like you could record something and have it evocative of that. So that that fact alone gave us the uh, license really to uh, to be creative with with the kind of sound that we that we used we we didn't go overboard but on the other hand we we weren't making a frederick wiseman documentary and uh, i'm just taking him as an example of a very precise aesthetic uh for a kind of documentary where Things like Foley or ADR or even mu music are not really allowed to hold center stage or much of a stage at all in, in a Frederick Wiseman documentary. So he and people like him occupy the um, one side of the equation, and I think Particle Fever is probably at the other side of that equation. My, my hunch is that this documentary will use the same approach as uh, particle fever, but I, I just don't know yet because we're too early in the process. Do you feel that in general, um, over the course of your career, has documentary film uh, changed to, uh, to, uh, to employ an approach that I, I think we would more commonly associate with narrative film in terms of storytelling? Yeah, I think so. But I think at the same time, feature films have been uh, benignly infected with the aesthetic of documentary films. To, mm -hmm. to give you one example from Apocalypse Now, the, the dialogue track on Apocalypse was 
probably 90% ADR. And when I was pre-mixing the dialogue, I was terrified that the film would wind up sounding like ADR. And so we did everything we could to, uh, to record the ADR as if it were being recorded by a documentary sound crew. In other words, mm -hmm. with great difficulty. So we used in the, in the recording sessions uh, in the ADR studios, we used a shotgun mic, which really there's no reason to do that. And yet much, uh, that's what you would have used at that time if you were shooting a documentary. And in pre-mixing the dialogue, I thought if this were really happening, the sound recordist would have rolled off a lot of the low end. So mm -hmm. that's what I'm going to do. So I took these relatively perfectly recorded ADR tracks and damage them by rolling off more of the, you know, 200 cycles and below than you would normally do in order to make it feel like it really is happening uh, as you were, as you were watching it. So I, I, I think documentaries do are being in, uh, influenced by the kind of techniques that we use in, uh, feature films, but at the same time, feature films, vis-a-vis, uh, -vis, you know, just look at any of the Bourne films. Mm -hmm. Those films are uh, definitely affected by the aesthetic of documentaries. Interesting. Um, I, I want to talk with you a little bit um, about, so obviously you're cutting picture on this documentary. Are, are, will, will you also participate in, in the sound work as well at the appropriate time? I don't know. I don't know yet. On on particle fever, I uh, had probably fifty soundtracks going in Final Cut as I was editing it, and then I handed those over uh, to a sound designer and uh, Mr. Ford, and um, he added a, a beautiful extra layer of stuff uh, on that that worked with the the kind of nuts and bolts stuff that I was working with. And then in the mix, uh, he and I mixed the film. I, I mixed the music and he mixed the dialogue and sound effects. So that may happen in this case, but I, I don't know. Well, uh, the, the next question I wanted to pose to you actually um, comes from Gary Rydstrom, um, who uh, uh, has worked on many amazing pictures, including Jurassic Park and Terminator 2 and Saving Private Ryan. So, and you'll appreciate this, this is a, a perfectly phrased Gary Rydstrom question. Um, he writes, you are one of the few people who have, who have worn a sound designer hat and a picture editor hat on the same project. What's the difference between those two hats and what happens when you wear them together? It's, uh, it's like multitasking in the sense that you think you are doing things simultaneously and, but you aren't. You're flipping pretty quickly from one to the other and back again. So I don't think I did wear two hats simultaneously. When I was doing sound work, the sound hat was definitely on my head. And when I was editing picture, the picture hat was on my head. And uh, the first time you go from editing picture to working on sound, there's a there's a awkward period of about a week or two weeks where you think, well, there's nothing to do. I've done everything that <laughs> is to be done because 
picture editors do edit sound. You just don't edit a complicated soundtrack. And eventually the, the weather begins to change and you realize, no, there's a tremendous amount you can do to sound. But it, it just takes time because those two crafts, even though they're flip sides of each other, are aesthetically kind of at right angles to each other. And so you right. have to readjust the angle with which you look at the film. It's as if when you go to work on sound on a film that you have edited picture, now you're looking sideways and with x-ray eyes at <laughs> something that you normally have been looking frontally at using only the visual spectrum. But are you, as you go through the process of, of cutting the picture, are you kind of making mental notes to yourself about, about opportunities for sound? Or um, w w I, I presume, as you say, that it's really, the, the, the processes are, are, they are speaking to each other as you go through it. Yeah, I think I would definitely add any sound that is necessary to help tell the story, informational sounds. I would be very reluctant to add too many atmospheric sounds at that point. Mm -hmm. Although I do add some, but it's mostly what sounds do I need to help me to tell this story. On the other hand, when I am assembling the picture for the first time, I deliberately turn off the soundtrack so that I'm editing the, the scene, even though it might be a full-on dialogue scene, I'm editing it without any sound at all, because in a paradoxical way, listening to it, editing it without sound allows me, in a sense, to hear in an imaginative way the sound as it will be in the finished product. That sounds a little metaphysical, and it is, uh, but we all know that most of the time the dialogue track that you get from production is pretty nuts and bolts. And it has and, its problems, certainly. Yeah, and even if it doesn't have problems, it's just basically just the dialogue. And if you're listening to that, it's so compelling in a sense that it inhibits you from hearing the other sounds that will be there. Whereas when I turn off the dialogue and just I hear the dialogue in a sense in my mind, I also can hear all of the other sounds that will be there. It's a little like what happens when you go out on uh, at night or when the, the stars are out but the moon is not out. You can see more stars and dialogue in a sense occupies the place that the moon does. Yeah, the stars are there but mainly you see the moon whereas when the moon is not there you really see the stars and I think that's this kind of state that I'm trying to get in to early as early as possible. Of course, then once I put the scene together and made a few revisions, then I flip on the sound and listen to it and am uh, surprised creatively <laughs> by some of the things that happen because I have been cutting the sound, I just haven't been listening to it. So I, all of my cuts are straight through the soundtracks. So words get cut off in the middle and if I've stolen a shot from somewhere else in the scene, I'll hear some dialogue that doesn't pertain at all. Although, in maybe 5% of the time, those accidents actually are very um, uh, fruitful. Mm. And I never would have 
come up with that idea if I had to deliberately choose it. But now that I see it or hear it, I think that's great. And so I will uh, preserve those good things. I will fix the things that are obviously wrong. And I would say about 75% of everything that's left is exactly the way it probably should have been in the first place. But I don't, a, I don't encumber myself at that early stage by listening to the dialogue. Interesting. Well, that actually leads it to a question that I really wanted to ask you, which is um, you spoke uh, uh, at length in uh, Michael Ondaatje's really amazing book, The Conversations, which was a series of, of conversations that you guys had after working together on The English Patient. Um, and you described this, this process of how you cut picture with, without you know, listening to the sound. And I was curious, has your approach to picture editing uh, are you still basically doing it in the same way that, that, that you outlined in that book? Do you still have your, your image boards with, with all of the, the, the still images from uh, the scenes that you're working on? And, uh, or or how, is your, how is your the details of your approach changed uh, over time? Fundamentally, it, it's exactly the same. I still use a, a selection of still images that I have captured from every setup. And I still take the, what other people might say are an obsessive amount of notes. Um, <laughs> and I still have my little uh, uh, silhouette people on either side of the screen to remind me that the screen is, in fact, 30 or 40 feet wide. And uh, inevitably, it changes. I'm, I'm now on my third uh, editing platform. I started with Avid back in, well, when, when I went digital, I, I started with Avid back in 1995, stayed with them until Cold Mountain in 2002, switched then to Final Cut, and then Apple pulled the rug out from under me in 2011. Not just you. They, they pulled that out from I'm quite a few people. wandering in the wilderness for a while, alternating between Legacy Final Cut, which was a zombie program at that time, and Avid, and now I'm working with Premiere. Each one of them is different in their own way. They're all basically the same, uh, but uh, that that's the, the main bone that I'm chewing on right now. It's very delicious, but it is a bone. <laughs> I have to learn, uh, and I am uh, learning this a new program. This is the first film that I've edited on Premiere. Well, I, you... It seems like you're fearless about embracing new technology. I, I, I say that even going back to um, kind of descriptions I've read from Francis Coppola about you guys working on the Rain People uh, and bringing over the first, you know, uh, sound editing and mixing equipment from Germany and doing everything yourself. You were the first picture. You were the first picture to cut on Final Cut that I was aware of with Cold Mountain. Um, and, and, you know, e even now you're still embracing new, new tools. So is, is that just part of the challenge for you? What keeps you fresh and, and what excites you about, about the process today? I, I think so. It, it must be part of my makeup that uh, I will jump into these crocodile infested waters sooner than other people. Uh, Final Cut was not, it wasn't, Cold Mountain wasn't the first. It was certainly, it was the first big budget movie. There, there had been some uh, lower budget independent films using Final Cut before. And Apocalypse Now was the first big multi-track film ever to use a computer-assisted mixing board. And it was the first film to 
anyway, it, it broke uh, a number of barriers. Uh, so I, I guess it's just something that I am challenged with in a good way. I, I think every tool that we use is a kind of language that allows us to speak cinematically with slightly different dialects, let's say. Mm. And I'm interested in exploring those dialects because they will bring out certain things in the work that might remain hidden if you were using a different system and, and vice versa. But it, it, it's basically, it's like speaking a different language. At what point in the editing process do you introduce music? Um, I, I've read, uh, I've read in the past, you, you, you refer to music as sometimes it can be like a steroids, uh, for the film, uh, kind of pumping things up and masking some structural or inherent weaknesses. And so I'm, I'm curious about your relationship to music as you're editing the film together. The ideal situation for me was the situation that happened on the first film that I picture edited, the first feature film, which was The Conversation. Mm. And on that film, Francis had asked David Shire to write the music before the shooting. And David's hair stood on end at that point. <laughs> uh, and Francis uh, reassured him and said, no, you've, you've written several Broadway plays, uh, musicals. This is, just think of it that way. Even though it's a dramatic film, you have the script. That's the book. So write some music for it. Pretend it's a musical. And that, that relaxed David. And he wrote some wonderful music uh, on the piano and recorded it. Him, you know, him himself playing it. And so Francis was able to play that music to the actors as he was uh, directing them in a scene. Here, we're going to do this scene, and here's the music that might be in this scene. And that's right. a fantastic thing, experience for an actor to hear the invisible partner that ultimately he will be, he or she will be dancing with. Um, but here it is. So that, what that means is, oh, if the music is going to be doing that, if the music is going to be sad, I don't have to be so sad because the music will do it. I don't have right. to play sad. I can play against that and the music will take care of the sadness or, you know, vice versa. But that also meant that we never had a temp track. We had a continuously evolving musical score because I would take the four things that David wrote and they were just thematically related to the film, not specifically to this scene or that scene. And I would start placing them against certain scenes and they would work in certain places and not in others. I would show that to David and Francis. That would trigger more ideas and then we would get another round of music and then, so the cycle would repeat and until we had the finished score. And that was, Roughly what the experience that I had working with Anthony Minghella on um, English Patient and Ripley and Cold Mountain, because that's mm. how he worked with Gabriel Yared. And uh, otherwise, you, you are almost always asked to use temp music. And I, I like doing temp music, but I recognize the dangers of temp music, which is that the music and the film start to mix up their DNA. 
<laughs> and at the point that you have to get rid of the temp music and replace it with the real music is a very uh, awkward period because the, the music has penetrated, the temp music has penetrated into your consciousness much more deeply than you ever realize. Sure. And the poor composer is trying to satisfy the filmmakers um, by duplicating the essence of what they used for temp music, but, you know, it's, it's generally a kind of hopeless task. In the end, it all works out somehow, but it, it does make for an awkward two or three weeks. So that the, uh, the method that you were describing, uh, your collaboration with David Shire on the conversation, so obviously you worked with David again on the picture that you directed, Return to Oz, Right. Were you guys able to work in a, in a similar fashion on that film, or did circumstances dictate that you had to do it uh, differently? Yeah, the circumstances dictated a different approach. We did not use any temp music on that film. We, we edited the picture and got it into a shape where David was able to start afresh, which is also an ideal situation for a composer, not to have to listen to temp music. And he and I had a, have a very good relationship, so we were able to catch each other's mood and intuit what each of us was thinking, and uh, the, the film progressed from there. It's a, it's a wonderful score, and I think part of the, the greatness of it is that it was not influenced by, by temp music. I love David's score for the for that film and also for the conversation. He, he did a remarkable score for David Fincher's film Zodiac as well. Yes. Uh, yeah. I, I wish that I wish that he did more film scoring. He, he's so, it's such a he's so fantastic at it. Yes, I agree. So as we're discussing music a little bit, I, I I wanted to talk with you about how you use music differently in different kinds of films, and, and I'm thinking about there's that there's that you know now obviously famous scene from The Godfather. Uh, with Michael's, uh, I'm talking about the scene uh, with where Michael murders Salazzo and Captain McCluskey in the Italian restaurant right. in in the first Godfather film. Um, and in that in that way in that film, you almost use sound design as score. I think a lot of a lot of other film directors would have had a traditional score through that sequence as the tension builds and as Michael goes and gets the gun. But you made a very different decision. How, I'm just curious how that sequence came together. Was that always part of the, the design for that sequence? Well, it was ultimately Francis's decision uh, to not have music in that scene. And he and Nino Rota had worked out a very powerful piece of music to come in once the murder had happened. Mm -hmm. So after Salazzo has been killed, there's a moment of silence. Michael drops the gun and then the, this big musical cue comes in. Interestingly, that, was, that music was to trigger an intermission. And mm. at a certain point in the life of Godfather, there was going to be an intermission at that point. That music that you now hear after the murder is, was originally composed to be the music that took you out into the lobby of the theater so you could buy some popcorn and talk about the first half of the movie. <laughs> but it was Robert Evans's idea not to have an intermission 
And Godfather actually, among all the other historical things about it, it was the first long film never to, not to have an intermission. Mm. And theater owners were furious. They screened the film and came out looking green or white because there's no intermission. How are we going to make our money back? <laughs> and uh, Bob Evans, his, his rationale for this was that the film is too powerful. We don't want to let them off the hook. Having an intermission will re release the tension that is just so powerful in this scene. So because that was such a big piece of music, Francis didn't want to undercut it by having music in the, in the lead up to the murder. But that scene is long-ish. It's three minutes long. It's half of it's in Italian and no subtitles. And right, so right. We, we felt, well, it needs something. And I grew up in Manhattan, not too far away from where that restaurant theoretically was. And I knew that in that part of the Bronx, there were a lot of elevated trains. So that gave me permission to think, well, we could have some distant elevated trains coming and going. And then as the scene progressed, they would get louder and louder until finally, in the moments before Michael pulls the trigger, they're very loud and with screeching brakes, which kind of gets at a sort of psycho Bernard Hermanish quality <laughs> uh, that makes you think, if you think about that sound at all, you think, well, this is the sound that Michael Corleone's neurons are making as he pulls the trigger. And I think that's how it's accepted. Um, in fact, uh, a mafia hitman, Sammy the Bull Gravano, used <laughs> that sound effect as evidence that Mario Puzo must have been in the mafia. And the interviewer from the New York Times said, why is, why is that? And he said, well, that's exactly what my brain sounded like when I killed my first hit. So, That's amazing. You know, here this, uh, you know, innocent little sound effects editor from the Upper West Side of Manhattan wound up du duplicating a, the sound that murderers hear when they make, when they have their first kill. I, I think that's a very instructive use of music because when the music comes in, clearly the audience is in, in an emotional state. And, but the music hasn't gotten them to that state. It's the scene mm. that has gotten them there and the acting and the writing and, you know, d way down the ladders, uh, the sound effects. But when the music comes in, the music helps the audience to know what to do with that emotion. Because we've just mm -hmm. been presented with a very ambiguous thing. The hero of the movie, the, the fellow who at the beginning of the movie said, I'm not going to be part of the mafia. I'm, I'm going to be a clean person. Here, specifically because he was an innocent person, nobody suspected that he would ever kill anybody. That's why they allowed him to have this meeting. And he has done exactly the opposite of what he said he dreamed about doing at the beginning of the film. So not only has he killed two people at point-blank range, murdered them, but mm. he's also killed the dream that animated him as a character. And that's, that's kind of a hot potato. Should we, do we like this guy? 
or not. You know, he's a murderer, and he just murdered his all of his ideals as well. And the music comes in, and the music essentially says it's opera. This Michael, mm -hmm. even though people aren't singing, Michael's dilemma is the dilemma that we meet in operatic characters. It's a big dilemma. And stick with him because in the end it will all not necessarily work out, but you will feel um, some kind of uh, ambiguous resolution at the end at the end of the of the film. So the the music is not creating the emotion; it's bringing an emotion and condensing it and bringing it to earth in a sense, putting you back in a place where you're ready for the next emotion, kind of like a like a roller coaster, and the, mm. the music uh, and the mu emotion will build up again, and then the music will come in and tell you what to do with that emotion. So it's uh, it the music is helping to metabolize emotion rather than to create emotion. And if I had to choose point blank, which what was a good way to put music in film, I would say that. Uh, clearly, the other way works. You know, evidence uh, number one in the dock is Star Wars. It's uh, got this music right all the way through that is telling you just what you should feel. And it clearly works on an aesthetic and uh, financial and commercial level. But it does have a danger, which is that you can get addicted to that like athletes get addicted to steroids. Steroids work, no question about it. Barry Bonds hit all those home runs. But... Is it good for him in the long run? No, it's not healthy. And is it good for the game in the long run? Also, no. Um, so I would I would advise caution when you reach for the syringe of uh, steroids, <laughs> musical steroids. Just uh, take it easy. There, there's other ways to do it. Uh, on the other hand, if you want, if you want to create a film of unbearable mounting tension. The answer is A, be a good filmmaker, B, don't use any music at all. Uh, evidence mm. would be uh, Fritz Lang's M, Peter Lorre's, uh, the film with Peter Lorre about the child murderer, mm -hmm, or mm -hmm. Wages of Fear, Clouseau's film, or more recently, uh, No Country for Old Men, or Amour. Right. None yeah. of these films have any music at all. Shockingly, Amour doesn't even have any music for the end titles. But they're all about, they, they all keep you in a very intense state because the music isn't holding your hand. I mean, even in a classic, you know, down and dirty horror film, the music is there to scare you, and it does scare you, but it's also like your big brother saying, I'm going to scare you. And mm -hmm. it's your big brother, you know, how bad could it be? Whereas when there's no music, it's like there's nobody there. It's just you and these horrible things. And so even, even when music is trying to be scary, secretly it's there because the filmmakers are your friends and they want you to have a scary experience. When there's no music, you're, you're on your own, baby. And that's ultimately much more scary. But you have to be a good filmmaker, like Fritz Lang, the Coen brothers, Clouseau, and... Uh, Mr. Just blanked on his name. I'm sorry. <laughs> that's okay. Well, Mr. Uh, Amour. Oh, Mr. Amour. Yes. Yeah. Uh, oh, uh, Mr. Uh, his name is uh, Hanky, uh, I believe, right? 
Yes, that's right. Yeah, Haneke. Thank you. So, but I, I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna proceed with this thread just a moment because I'm also really curious. For me, I I, I, re, I watched the English Patient again for the first time in a long time, and I, I felt like the the score for English Patient is so beautiful, but it's definitely it's it's often the driving engine behind some of those sequences, um, and so I'm curious about. You know, it seems like you're saying you use music in a in a way that the film needs, uh, uh, and the English patient certainly, I think, benefited from a very powerful leading score like that. Sure, and and you know, don't over uh, don't over egg the role of the editor or the sound designer. We are there to serve the director and the director's vision. Mm-hmm. And Francis's vision on Godfather was the vision we've just been talking about. I applaud that vision. I'm gl- glad that was the right decision. On the other hand, on The Rainmaker, Francis used music from beginning to end. So depending on the film and depending on the mood, it can obviously change from filmmaker to filmmaker, but even from film to film with the same filmmaker, it can change. And we we are there to help the process along and to make suggestions creatively at the right moments, not to become pains in the asses. Uh, with too many <laughs> suggestions, uh, we are enabling the vision and helping to get it out of. It occasionally gets stuck in ruts, or you know, gets uh, its axles, its wheels up to the axles in mud, and we're there to help get the car rolling again. Mm-hmm. So, yes, English patient, uh, it, that approach seemed, I think, to be the right approach for that film. It, it isn't wall-to-wall music. There are long sections with no music in it. But when the music does come in, it definitely is, uh, um, it's, it's, it's got its foot on the pedal all the way. So at that point, we're going to hit the pause button. Uh, much like The Godfather, our conversation with Walter was just far too epic to fit onto one podcast conversation. So please join us again for part two. Uh, Walter will take more questions from sound designers, including Randy Tom and Will Files. Uh, we'll talk about the state of cinema sound before and after Apocalypse Now. Walter will talk about why he thinks that film school can still be a good idea and, uh, and many other topics. So this is Glenn Kaiser from the Dolby Institute uh, signing off on this podcast. See you soon. <laughs>